Amen. Gosh, it is good to be worshiping with you all today. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if I'm Joel, Prophet Joel in the Old Testament, find that. That's where we're going to be today. We're starting two weeks in the book of Joel. We've been doing the Minor Prophets this year. Uh, we are going to take a break in just a couple weeks at Ash Wednesday. We're going to change it up for Lent and do something else during Lent. But we'll come back to them. We finished two of the three periods of the minor prophets, right? So the Assyrian period ends with northern kingdom being destroyed. The Babylonian period ends with the southern kingdom being hauled off into exile. We wrap that up with kind of the epilogue to that time with Obadiah last week uh, after, the, after church last Sunday. Somebody came up to me and said, that was the best sermon on Obadiah I've ever heard. And then they paused and they said, well, it was the only one. So it's also the worst sermon on Obadiah I've ever heard. It's both the best and the worst. Um, so, it, but we're going to dive into the book of Joel. I want to talk about something that makes the prophets distinct. Uh, and I want to set it up this way. One of the realities of the times that we live in with the information age is we are exposed to so much tragedy that is happening in the world, Right? Like instantly, if something horrible happens in the world, our news feeds are filled with images and stories about that horrible thing. Now, I, I think part of that is good. We can be aware of the brokenness in the world that we, lived, uh, we live in. Um, but I think there is a handful of things about it that can be really difficult to navigate. One of the things that I think is particularly troublesome about that is the way the reporting is done on horrible tragedies and events. Um, there's always kind of the initial report and the facts, but then there's instantly kind of that pivot to, hey, here's someone who's an expert in something. Let's hear what they think about this tragedy. And so what fills our heads when something bad happens is not just the nature of the tragedy or the grief or the mourning that, that should follow that tragedy, but it's a lot of opinion that people have about what just happened. And I'm not sure that's always healthy. I, I wish I could say that the church has been wise enough to stay out of that behavior um, or that when people have turned to us, we've stood in front of a camera and brought the perspective of love and empathy. Uh, but sadly, as you know, that's not always been the case. I know we probably all were equally grieved when after events like 9-11 or like uh, the Haiti earthquake or Hurricane Katrina, some famous TV preacher got in front of a camera and uh, blamed the events on a specific sin or a specific group of sinners, right? And it was no surprise that the sins that they wanted to talk about were not sins that they thought they struggled with. It wasn't like they said, listen, we've been misusing funds in the church for years, so that's probably why God is judging our nation, right? No, it's always somebody else's sin who has caused said tragedy. Here's what I want to point out. I hope we've learned this. What the prophets are doing is nothing like that. In a lot of ways, it's nothing like that. But most notably, when the prophet said to the people of God, hey, your sin is going to cause a moment of judgment, they always said it prior to the moment. And that matters, right? They said it before the moment was happening. The prophets were not like TV preachers who are just blaming people when bad things happened. They were warning people prior to the bad thing, so that hopefully they would turn to God. Blaming sinners after something bad happens, that is not a prophetic act. I would even say it's not even a spiritual act. It's honestly, it's, it's more like an act of cowardice. 
You know, Romans 12 tells us mourn with those who mourn. So this idea of showing up and offering your opinion about who is to blame after something bad has happened, that is just simply not biblical Christianity. It's, it's poverty of soul, honestly, that should be deeply disturbing to all of us who hear it. And I know it is. I know I'm preaching to the choir. I know none of you people are doing that, right? I bring it up because today we're talking about the prophet Joel. Joel's unique for a few reasons, but one of the most notable ways that he is unique is unlike all the other prophets, he is a prophet who is going to write after a bad thing has happened, right? The other prophets are all writing before something bad is about to happen. Joel writes after it's happened. And what's really unique about his message is I don't know what you would expect a minor prophet to say after something bad has happened, but he doesn't like blame the people. He doesn't talk about idolatry and injustice and any of the things that the other prophets are calling out. He doesn't tell people this is your fault. He does tell people to turn to God, uh, but he does that more in a general sense that we all need to turn to God, especially in times of tragedy. And so what we're going to see that is so unique and refreshing in this book of Joel is that something really bad happens. Joel, the prophet of God, steps in to help people make sense of it. And instead of giving people an I told you so, instead of saying, get your act together, he goes in a very different direction. And it is refreshing. And I, like, honestly, I, I shouldn't be, but I, like, I'm, I'm shocked to see how he handles this tragedy. Um, it is as relevant today as it would have been 2,500 years ago or, or however long it was written. So turn to Joel chapter one. Let's look at this. Let me show you what I mean. This is an astounding little book. We're only giving it two weeks. We probably should give it more, but that's what we got. So uh, Joel chapter one, verse one, here's how it begins. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Now, one of the issues with Joel uh, is wherever you read about Joel, we don't really know what time of history this happened in. Uh, like we know he's talking about a specific event. We're not exactly sure when that event happened. Some say that it was at the beginning of the time of prophecy, which would put him back like in the 900 BC range. Some say it was even after the exiles, post-exilic, which would put him around 500 BC or maybe even a little bit sooner than that. And there's a few theories in between. We decided to put him right after Obadiah, which is almost certainly not when he appeared. But I'm not being graded on this, we're just going to do it now. Nobody really knows, right? Here's what Joel writes. Verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to the children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locust have eaten. What the great locust have left, the young locust have eaten. What the young locust have left, other locust have eaten. I don't want to challenge your biblical interpretation, but it, it appears something has happened with the locust. Um, I don't know if you gathered that, pieced that together with the clues he gives. Uh, so locust is a name given to about 20 different species of grasshoppers. They uh, live in desert areas, and they're typically very, live very solitary lives in desert areas. Now, that is because they really only lay their eggs in wet sand, right? So they need that moisture. That's not super common in the des desert. So they're not normally swarms of locusts. That's not their normal life cycle. But occasionally, every few decades, there will be unseasonable rains and heavy 
heavy rains in the desert, and so the sand everywhere is wet, and that somehow triggers something in these locusts, and they get very social with one another, and they lay eggs all over the desert, right? And when they hatch, as a group, they do something that they don't normally do. As a group, they start to migrate in search of food, and this is the result. That is a swarm of locusts. This, this does happen every so often. This happened in 2020 in East Africa. There was a, a, a locust, a plague of locusts where this sort of event happened and they swarmed and they just destroy everything. During one of these cycles, the, the locust actually changes. Their bodies change. Their bodies get bigger. Their bodies get in some cases bright yellow, which I think is what you see here, or they can turn like pitch black in certain instances, and they just destroy all the vegetation in their path. They're totally unselective about what they eat, so they just eat everything. Now, you can imagine, even these days, that is a challenging event for a region. Um, but you, you think in the ancient world, where there's not like shipping lanes all over the, the globe, and everyone is living in an agrarian society, this was a devastating moment. This was a catastrophe that would affect generations, like people would starve. This, this was uh, risking life when this happens. And it's important to note this, what we read in Joel, Joel is going to stop short of saying that this incredible calamity is caused by God. He kind of keeps this in the category of allowed by God. Now, later in the book, if you keep reading, he's going to talk about a future day of the Lord. And he's going to even talk about that the Lord is going to command an army of locusts. But as near as we can tell, he's likely talking about either the Assyrian army or the Babylonian army, or maybe some end times imagery is in there. He's, he's using it kind of metaphorically. But that's the future event he's talking about. When he talks about this event that has just happened, he's very careful not to say that God caused it or that it was because of the people's sin. He even, um, well, he just is more concerned with how do we respond now than who is to blame. And that's where I think we need to focus today, because if blame is not the answer, how do we respond when we are exposed to disaster and to tragedy? Let's let Joel guide us. He points us to two things. When something bad happens, how do the people of God respond? Let me just read four sections of scripture, and I want to see if you can detect the theme that is the first thing he points us to. Look at verse 5. Joel says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. Now, we have to be careful here. He's not condemning drinking. That English word drunkards has a very negative connotation. The Hebrew word that he uses here does not have as negative of a connotation. And we have to understand alcohol, specifically wine and beer in the ancient world, was very important for survival for a lot of reasons. One is it was much more sanitary. The alcohol would kill germs, so it was a little safer to drink than just normal water. But it also would have been an important source of calories for people for whom nutrition was kind of a constant daily struggle. And so when he's talking about wine, he's not just talking about wine in the sense that we have wine. He's talking about wine as like this valuable resource that the people need. And Joel says this resource of new wine, it has been taken from us. It has been snatched from our lips. So for all of us who drink, we need to weep. Verse 8 is the second section. 
mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. He says, grieve like a young woman whose fiance has died because we've lost all of these resources, grain, new wine, olive oil. These were important things for life. And he says, it's all been destroyed. Verse 11, this is the third section. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. So he says, farmers, vine growers, those of you whose job it is to produce what we all live on, grieve for what you've lost. Our joy is withered away. Here's the fourth section. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Again, he says, priests, religious leaders, you should mourn because there's not even going to be enough for the offerings because of these locusts. So those are the four sections of scripture. Uh, do you detect a theme? Wait, is there a command? Is there something that he's encouraging? What do they all have in common? What is he saying that God's people need to do after this bad thing has happened? Yeah. It's this word, right? Grieve. Grieve. As God's people, what do we do when there's a calamity or a catastrophe or a tragedy? We don't blame people. We don't offer explanations. We don't say, well, you know, it's all going to work out. You know, when God closes a door, he opens a window or any of that stuff. We grieve. Joel says, weep. Well. Mourn, because something is gone that we will never get back. You know, obviously this principle, I think, would apply to national tragedies, to major moments and catastrophes. I think one of the things that we as God's people have to reclaim is that when we see people in our culture around us grieving and mourning because they've experienced loss, we need to show up and mourn with them. Right, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. We're not called to offer explanations. We're called to just grieve with them. Whenever there's a national tragedy, that is the response of God's people. But it also applies on a personal level too, right? It's not just about major calamities. This is what we do when our world falls apart. The only thing to do is grieve. Now, I think when I was younger, I would have heard this and been like, well, Joel, of course they're going to grieve. What do you do after something bad happens? Oh, you grieve. That, you know, you experience grief after a tragedy, after a loss. Of course they're going to grieve. But somewhere in the course of my 45 years, I, I, like, without even choosing it, I just realized that perspective has changed for me. Now I would say it this way, and I think this is what Joel is really getting at. Tragedy is something that just happens to us, right? We can't control that. 
But to really let yourself grieve and mourn what you've lost takes tremendous courage. That is a choice to enter into grief. We don't make a choice about tragedy and loss. We do make a choice to grieve. And the reality is this. Most of us, we would rather do 20 other things than enter into grief. And so when we experience loss, it's like, yeah, I'd rather blame someone. Or I'd rather get busy doing a whole bunch of things, trying to make something productive out of it. Or I'd rather just ignore it. Just ignore it. Just move past it. Or numb ourselves to it. What Joel's telling us to do, though, I think is what our souls actually need. To grieve the loss of something that we are not getting back that was meaningful to us. You know, loss does not discriminate at all. Like, this is what it means to be human. To live means we will lose things that we needed, things that we wanted. And so grief is actually this gut-wrenching decision to acknowledge that, that, hey, something has been shattered in me, that I've lost something, and to concede I've lost it. It's gone. When we don't do that, when we fail to really grieve something that we've lost, um, it always comes out in some other way. Because the, the nature of loss, it, it just sits in our soul. And if we don't actually enter into grief, it's going to come out in other ways. Sleep issues, anxiety, sexual issues, substance abuse, codependence, bitterness, eating issues, rage. Like the list of secondary ways that grief escapes from us is so long. Listen, as a, as a pastor, I mean, I, I have this on my own journey, but I also get to witness a lot of people's journeys where they struggle with various things, struggle with sin, struggle with behaviors that they, they're trying to overcome. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how many times if we trace those things back to their origin, there is some loss that we are carrying at the root of that behavior that we're trying to deal with. And that loss is something we failed to grieve that now is producing this thing over here, and we focus on trying to deal with that thing. But I think what Joel's telling us is, no, 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 you gotta go back to that loss. There's grief there that you have to step into. Mourn well, grieve this, because we've lost something to these locusts that we're never gonna get back. And that's what God's people need to do. I was uh, talking to my therapist about this. I was talking to him about something bad that had happened to me. It doesn't really matter what it was, but I, I was doing the thing that I do. I was just analyzing it, and I was, you know, had a lot of words about it. Um, I was talking about, you know, things I could have done differently to avoid the bad thing. And my counselor said something to me. He gave me a word that I was like, wow. It, it just was arresting to my mind. Uh, he said, all of that analysis, second-guessing, self-doubt, it's just painkiller. And I paused and I was like, oh, you're going to have to tell me more about what you mean by that. And he explained it. He said, you know, it, like it's just this strategy that you grab onto and that you use to hold the grief at bay and to avoid this very simple fact that this experience is extremely painful. It hurts. And this overanalysis it's just a way to ignore that grief. Oh. To have a good therapist is like, it's like having a frenemy, you know? It's like, I like you so much, and also stop it. 
but I see the truthfulness of that. I see how, like, like this is my painkiller. Like, I would rather learn a lesson and make plans for the future so that I never have to experience that bad thing ever again. Like if, like if I have to just sit in the grief, I'm like, nope, instead of that, let me just apply my mind to the thing. I won't feel the feelings. I'm just going to apply my mind and I'm going to learn all the lessons that I can learn out of it. And I'm going to change for the better so that one day I'll never have to experience that hard thing ever again. It's painkiller. And it got me thinking, I know Joel's not a therapist, he's a prophet, but man, this voice, I think he realizes we all, as God's people, we have this painkiller strategy like that. This thing that we're going to grab onto when something bad happens just to keep us from feeling the hurt. And Joel steps in and says, no, 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 that's not good for you, just grieve. As I was thinking about this, I started to have a little bit of uh, empathy and soften maybe a little bit about those TV preachers, you know, just a little, not a lot, but just a little bit, just started to soften because I think blaming someone is a painkiller strategy, right? I see that. That's probably what is at work in their lives when they step into this horrible instance uh, of tragedy, blaming someone instead of allowing themselves to feel the grief and vulnerability and fragility of living in a world where planes fly into buildings, where earthquakes devastate the poor, where oceans overwhelm cities and locusts devour everything. Huh. I, I get it. I get why they'd rather blame someone than sit in that truth. We all have some strategy to avoid the vulnerability of grief. Joel says, stop, grieve, mourn. Put all that stuff down. Cry, wail if you have to. This is hard. We have lost something that we didn't want to lose. And now we're left with big questions about God and about our future. So this is the first thing from the minor prophet Joel that I think he's endeavoring to teach us. When something bad has happened, we must grieve it, and there is no substitute for that. We just, we have to grieve it. You might ask, well, what does that look like? I hope you're gathering. I'm not great at this. I look back in my life and see all these moments where I chose not to grieve and chose to do something else instead. I'm learning a few things, though. I'm trying to learn this. I've got a few wise people in my life. I'm learning the way of grief is going to be different for each person. Like there's no right way, right? There's no timeline for grief. Some grief, you just, you'll carry the rest of your life. You just, I'm learning this. Grief is not about fixing ourselves. Um, I've, I, I think I've stopped asking this question, but I used to ask it a lot uh, with my counselors. Just like, how do I grieve well so that I can be done with it? <laughs> it's like, I don't, that's, I'm learning this. Grief is not necessarily bad. We, tend to think of grief as bad, but really what's more true is loss is bad, right? Tragedy is bad. Grief is the good response to those moments of loss. We realize this, scripturally, the whole earth is grieving the loss of sin, you know, the brokenness that has entered this world, even creation itself grieves. God grieves. So when we experience that brokenness of sin in our lives and somehow we lose something, even if it's like something we cause, we are entering in to the grief that all creation carries and even God himself. There's a goodness in that. 
even though it's deeply hard. I'm learning from my friend Cindy Limbrick. Um, she led this last fall a grief journey group here at Pulver Rock. She's going to do another one this fall. Uh, she sent me a quote, and basically the quote said this, that grief is either going to be an open wound that is healing or a closed festering wound, depending on how honestly we engage in it. I think that's what Joel's getting at here. I think he's saying, hey, you have to grieve honestly with God what you have lost. That's what your soul needs. Now, first he talks about this tragedy that just kind of happened to everyone. In a second, he's going to talk about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, where God is going to show up and basically there's going to be tragedy because of our sin that we experience. But after that, he talks about just kind of this response that honestly I think is the right response to either of those moments. Either we're just experienced tragedy that we didn't bring on ourselves, it just is the consequence of living in the broken world, or even if we brought it on ourselves, I think this is what he points us to as the response. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Here's the second thing he's encouraging. God shows up and God declares this. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings, drink offerings for the Lord your God. I can't tell you how much I love that phrase. Rend your heart, not your garments. Rend your heart with God. That's what he's encouraging here. Rending garments, that's an external form of grief. There was a lot of these things in Jewish culture, like rending garments, or he mentioned sackcloth, wearing sackcloth, or wailing loudly. These were ways that it was kind of like an external expression of grief. We don't have a lot of that stuff in our culture. Uh, we've got a few. But what Joel's saying here is, hey, you know, that's okay. Don't get caught up on the external thing. There's something internal that's needed. It has something to do with rending your heart, taking your rent heart to God in these moments of vulnerability and loss. He says, return to me with all of your heart. And so whether we brought it on ourselves or whether it's just living in a broken world like the locust, I think what Joel is showing us is that in these moments of grief, there is an option to run to our painkillers like we all inevitably do or to turn to God with all of our hearts. And I think the sort of grief that Joel is encouraging here is when we turn with all the hard and ugly parts of our heart to the God who is powerful enough to prevent our pain, but didn't. And I think that's probably why we don't do it sometimes. It's because we'll blame other people, but ultimately there's something about pain that invites us to blame God because we know he's powerful enough to prevent it. But for whatever reason, in this case, he didn't. And it takes courage in those moments to turn to him. But what Joel says is when we return to him with our weeping, with our wailing, with our rent hearts, with this sort of honest grief, with all of our questions about him and about our future, that's when we find this God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, 
and abounding in love. I think what Joel's telling us is that grief can save us on some level. Grief can connect us to God. Honest grief is what our souls need when we lose something. So if I was going to personalize this to us, I, I think this question is relevant, and I just want to put it out there. I, I understand that in, in like this context, you're not going to be able to answer this in this moment. You might have something instantly jump to your mind. You should pay attention to that. But this also is a question that maybe warrants a little bit of thought from each of us. So write it down. Think about it. Um, here's the question. Is there a loss in our past that we've never really grieved? Is there something back there, something in our rearview mirror that we've never really done what Joel was commanding us to? We've never really with honesty before God taken our hearts to him and just grieved that. And maybe something that you had that was central to your identity and you lost it and you'll never get it again. It may be, and I'm learning these are some of the most challenging things of grief, it may be something that you needed, you reasonably needed and reasonably could have expected, but that you never got. And that's a sort of loss that sometimes we don't realize because we, ne- we didn't, didn't know what it was like to have it. But we never got it, and there's grief in that. It may be something you longed for, like that your heart cried out for, and it never happened. Is our failure to grieve that thing, is it somehow festering in our life, is maybe the question here. Is it somehow coming out in a way um, that we need to pay attention to? Joel says, hey, can I just give you one answer? Just grieve it. That that is the only answer. It's not a simple answer. It's not an easy answer. It's not a formulaic answer. It's just the only answer. Let's go back to those TV preachers for a second. Why is it so awful to start blaming people after tragedy? There's a whole bunch of reasons we could give, right? One, it kind of denies the new covenant in Christ's blood. Like, right, we're people of grace, so it kind of denies that. Um, uh, It also teaches people that if you want empathy, don't come to the church. We're the people of I told you so, you know. Uh, There's a whole list of reasons. But one of the things that I think Joel would say is that blaming someone keeps you from grief. It keeps you from being able to really mourn. Because blame means you never have to deal with your fragility. Blame means we never have to turn to God. Blame means we have it figured out and uh, we never have to face the fact that because our world is broken, we will experience loss. And instead of helping us take our torn hearts to God, to the God of compassion in those moments, those TV preachers give us an enemy to blame because, man, that's way easier than sitting in grief, isn't it? So here's my question for you. Are you being a TV preacher to yourself? (laughs) Have you given yourself something else instead of giving yourself the space to grieve with your heavenly father? Have you grabbed onto a painkiller? Are you blaming? Are you overanalyzing something? Are you numbing yourself to it? Or are you keeping busy just to ignore the fact that you've lost something that was very important to you? 
I know we all hate grief. That's why we run from it. Um, None of us like it, but I think Joel's point is these things that we do to ignore grief are worse than the grief itself. They don't help us. They just cause secondary issues, and then we've got grief plus that other thing. He's telling us the truth when our world crashes down, whether that's self-inflicted or whether it's just the consequence of living in this broken world, we have to grieve with honesty and mourn and turn to this God who did not prevent our pain to find his compassion and mercy. So I just want to leave us with this question. Um, We know what Joel was mourning, horrible devastation that would affect generations. What's that thing for you that maybe you just need to make a little space to grieve, to grieve with God and to go to him? Let's do that. Lord, we come to you with our torn hearts. And God, we, we confess there's so many other things we'd rather do than grieve, uh, but before you, we, we want to find our way through this. And we want to grieve what we've lost. And so would you lead us on this path of grief? Help us to understand what it looks like to walk it with you. Help us to release blame, even blame of you, God. Help us to be honest with you about our questions and help us to return to you with all of our heart. We trust you, Lord. Amen.